Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I never want to see those pictures. If I looked at those pictures... The images would be burned in my memory until the day I died. Untold. The Daniel Morgan murder. The most investigated murder in British history. It's just over six weeks now since a private detective called Daniel Morgan was found dead in a car park of a pub in South London. It was gruesome. He'd been killed with an axe. 30 years ago, a private detective was brutally murdered and it still hasn't been solved. I'm Peter Jukes, and I'll be exploring how one man and his family began to unravel the truth. Well, he had this, uh, this story he's gonna sell to the press. I mean, I know that he knew that there were corrupt police officers. I was hanging on to my mental health by the skin of my teeth. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if you think we have incorruptible police, if you think we have a free press. If you think we have accountable government, when you hear this story, it'll make you think again. I know that there are people out there that do not want us or me to poke around in this. Untold, the Daniel Morgan murder. If you haven't heard this story, ask yourself, why? There are two good reasons why I got involved in this story. The first is that I spent 20 years of my life mainly as a TV dramatist and screenwriter. And inevitably, that means doing a lot of cop shows. So I've got to know quite a few police officers. I've been undercover, flown in helicopters, uh, surveyed people, and done a lot of things part of my research. So I knew quite a bit about the police already. The second thing that happened was about four years ago, I got involved covering the phone hacking scandal out of Rupert Murdoch's News International Empire in the UK. It was during the process of researching for my first book on that that I met Alistair Morgan. We first talked on the phone about his brother's murder and its connections to the news of the world scandal. A few months ago, I was sitting by the river in a pub on the Thames near the Globe Theatre. I was talking to my friend and co-producer, Devia. And I suddenly had the idea, why not do a podcast of the Daniel Morgan murder? And so, here we are. 
And so began this journey back, with Alistair's help and others, over 30 years to try to unpick some of the threads of this tangled plot. But first, let's spend some time getting to know the central figure of this story, Daniel Morgan. My memory of him as a little boy was this little cherubic kid with a big smile and with a little leg iron, you know. He was like a tiny Tim character, you know. Alistair's younger brother, Daniel, was born in Singapore in 1949 to mother Isabel and father John. John was a commissioned officer in the army who'd been badly injured in Arnhem in World War II. The family returned to England in the 1950s where a third child, Daniel's younger sister, Jane, was born to the Morgan family in 1952. It was very nice, my place in the family, being the only girl. Two older brothers who uh, sort of always were there to look after me. Daniel was born with a club foot, so spent much of his early childhood in and out of hospital, an orthopaedic hospital in Hampshire, to rectify the problem, which after several years was almost invisible. He was alone a lot, obviously separated from the family a lot, and I think it made him, in a kind of way, self-reliant. Perhaps this long time alone in hospital explains why, talking to the family, Daniel comes across as quite a self-reliant, idiosyncratic, private person. Because my parents had been in the Far East for some time in their lives, they liked Indian and Chinese food because they'd had lots of it in Singapore. And in the early 50s, there was a Chinese restaurant opened up in South Wales, near where we lived. It was a big treat for us to go to the Chinese restaurant. And I can remember Daniel saving up his pocket money and going on his own for a Chinese meal, going in there and ordering a, a Chinese at the age of nine years old. He had pet rabbits when he was perhaps 14 or something. He showed his rabbits at rabbit shows, and because my parents would have to drive him on a Saturday to the rabbit show, I'd have to go as well because he couldn't leave me at home and Alistair was old enough to do something else, but I had to keep going to rabbit shows. In school, he really wasn't interested in academic subjects and he loved doing things with his hands. And this went on throughout his whole life, you know, with cars and woodwork and building. And, and when he was about 15, he built a kayak for himself. He used to go uh, kayaking on the River Usk in it. You know, it was a working boat that he um, could use, you know. Daniel loved to make things and read these obscure magazines like Exchange and Mart and pour through car licence plates and the cost of them. And He knew, for example, the Guinness Book of Records from back to front. He'd memorise all kind of uh, junk things that most people would forget. He'd know who was the fattest man in the world and the thinnest man in the world and the fastest runner and the, all this kind of stats that they have in the Guinness Book of Records. He loved to read about this stuff and memorise it. The family moved from England to Wales in the mid-60s and, being strangers in a strange land, the family formed strong bonds, which would stand them in good stead, especially Alistair and Jane when their brother Daniel was murdered 20 years later and even now today when they're still campaigning for justice. I remember being called a filthy Welsh wog, but I was cunning enough. I was thinking, which of my two brothers will I take this to? If I tell Daniel, he'll just thump somebody. No, I'll tell Alistair. And I told him that a boy in his school had called me a filthy Welsh wog. And he said, 
right, I'll sort that out for you. And the boy didn't know I had two brothers. He only thought I had Danny, who was his age. He didn't realise I had a brother in the sixth form. And Alistair waited until the bus was in motion, and then he tapped this boy on the shoulder and said, My name is Alistair Morgan, and I want you to stand up now and tell the bus that you are a filthy English wog. Otherwise, I'm going to beat seven bells out of you. And um, he did it. As well as a natural instinct for justice, the family also had a natural interest in journalism. Their father, John, had been a journalist on the Singapore Times after he was injured at the Battle of Arnhem. When the family returned from Singapore, John could only get work down the mines, which aggravated his war wounds. He began to suffer from emphysema. In 1965, while going to hospital for a routine operation, he suffered a fatal thrombosis on the operating table. I was 16 and, you know, like death had never... It was, it was such a shock, you know, and it drew us closer together in a way. Alistair, always the more academic of the family, won a place at University College London where he studied Scandinavian languages. Daniel, the more practical one, went to an agricultural college in Usk, got married, moved to Denmark for a while, and then came back to London, where he was introduced by his mother's new partner to a private detective firm called Madigan's. He had worked for a guy called Brian Madigan, who had a big firm in South London or Croydon area, and eventually decided he wanted to go on his own. You can't be timid to do it, because if you're confronting fraudsmen and thieves and things like that, you have to have some nerve, if, if you like. He wasn't a shrinking violet, shall we say. He was quite bold, if he had to be. Here we go. South London, 1980s. Private investigators, corrupt cops. This is where the dark arts were born. Daniel, hard-working, self-motivated, with a phenomenal memory for facts and number plates, was in some ways ideally suited for the role of a private investigator. You see, private detectives are not like the gumshoes of Hollywood movies, stalking adulterous lovers and falling for femme fatales. No, they're more dedicated and prosaic, reclaiming stolen vehicles or repossessing property and serving legal writs. I remember a few times going out with him for the day. Once we went from London up to Leeds, Danny repossessed a building, a workshop or something, got locksmiths in, changed the locks, back in the car. Off we then went to Newcastle on Tyne, where he did something else, served a writ on somebody, which he had always said, take a bouquet. A bouquet of flowers. A bouquet of flowers, because nobody's going to say I'm not Mr Smith or I'm not Mrs Smith. If you've got a bouquet, they think it's into Flora. They do say who they are. I can remember he started from his dining room with a filing cabinet and a, a sort of old banger, because I think he'd had a company car with Madigan's. But he always worked hard, very, very hard, Danny. In 1983, Alistair returned from Sweden, where he'd spent over a decade. By then, Daniel was so busy, he was about to form a new partnership called Southern Investigations. OK, before we get to Southern Investigations, I want to take you back to South London in the 1980s, where this whole saga begins. I knew it well. I lived there at the time. 
I remember the helicopters over the Thames as thousands of police held back the unions demonstrating at Rupert Murdoch's new whopping plant over the river. It was also very white compared to North London where I'd lived before. The headquarters of the neo-Nazi British National Party was based just down the road. It was also very post-industrial. If you've seen the Bob Hoskins movie, The Long Good Friday, you'll know what I mean. It was filmed around there. Derelict docks, dodgy redevelopments, corrupt councillors and bent cops. I went back there recently with a friend. You could explain to people who don't know London what's distinctive about South London, what some of they call it. They don't call it South London, South London. South, yeah. So it's, uh, well, I mean, the accent's very different, I think, as well, because it's a lot more of a, a nasal kind of sound to it. Lots Traffic. of boy races around. Yeah. So everybody look, yeah, to try and impress you, you know, with the speed of their car. I remember having yeah. a race. I had a, a tiny yellow metro for yeah. one audience. It's not a great car. And it used to feel I had to beat everybody at the traffic lights. I think uh, people are a lot more friendly in South London. We spoke to a number of people who remembered a particular part of South London called Sydenham. I mean, this part of Sydenham, lots of Londoners that have come from inner London moved out to this way. There's quite a few Irish people around this area then. Um, it's, it's changed a lot. The whole of, sort of south-east London, I remember it being a very racist area. I remember things like the uh, the National Front marches in, in Lewisham. Yeah, about Sydenham. It's not somewhere I'd want to live. My boys keep saying, oh, why don't you move out of Sydney, Mum? It's a bloody dump. <laughs> and I said, no, I like it here. I know everyone, you know. I don't like it here. Yeah, I've probably gone a bit downhill in the last 50 years. The public house, the pub, was at the centre of society in London in the 1980s, and three pubs play an important role in our story, especially one, the Golden Lion in Sydney. This pub called the Golden Lion was um, a rocking pub. Better than it was now because you could smoke. Yes. And the beer was cheap. Very quick. Very quick. <laughs> this pub was packed. When the meal was on on a Friday and Saturday night, you couldn't get in that pub for teenagers. <laughs> good and bad pubs, you know, good and bad nightclubs. Then, in the 80s, it went quite quiet. Crucially, the Golden Lion has a very remote, secluded car park where somebody one day would get away with murder. I know my friend got knocked up in the car park. <laughs> so it was quite quiet out the back there, just a paved over car park area. It was quite quite big and not really overlooked. So it's, it's quite isolated and it's very possible that, you know, you can get, get away with all kinds of things out there. Daniel formed his new company, Southern Investigations, in 1984 with a former bailiff he'd met at Madigan's, Jonathan Reese a chatty, bluff northerner from Rotherham. He and Daniel used to argue a lot. Reese would call Daniel a Welsh cripple. Daniel would call Reese a fat bastard. Short of money, and at a bit of a loss what to do on returning from Sweden, Alistair used to work for the company on occasions. He didn't take a particular shine to Jonathan Reese. Daniel asked me on one occasion, they wanted some undercover work done. It was for a major supermarket chain, and the senior management of the chain thought that a manager in a particular branch had his hands in the till, so to speak. Right. And I was put in there as a trainee manager, and I had to keep an eye on this um, person and see. And I was watching, it was quite difficult, and it seemed to me that this manager was very, very conscientious guy. You know, he was very 
concerned about customer service and that the customers were getting what they wanted. And I thought, I couldn't see anything that was going on there that seemed suspicious. A couple of years after this, and it was very, very shortly before my brother died, this job came up in conversation. I think I raised it. And, and, um, and I remember Reese shocked me. He'd said that if he couldn't find somebody who was guilty of stealing, he would fit somebody up. So the partnership that had formed them was kind of already a bit on. Oh, it was. On, on it was the on the rocks. It was on the rocks. By the time my brother, by the time of my brother's murder, it was on the rocks. My brother uh, used to complain to me when I spoke to him. He'd say that. Um, I remember him saying to me once, "Alistair, I drove forty thousand miles last year," and he said, "And uh, all that guy does is sit in the bar with his police friends." You know. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That area of southeast London, I mean, there's lots of um, stories about the cops there. But you obviously saw that the private investigative world was kind of overlapped the police world. You, you encountered some of these police officers. Did you not encounter a rather important police officer? I remember him once saying to me, uh, I know that Jonathan Reese is in a pub nearby here um, and there's a couple of policemen there and should we go and meet them? So we, we went into this pub and um, there I was introduced for the first time to Sid Fillory. Who was at this point a uh, sergeant? He was, he was a detective sergeant, that's all I knew. Detective Sergeant Sid Fillory, known to his fellow officers as the King of Catford, had recently been seconded from the regional crime squad, but was back in Catford and would be at the centre of a circle of corrupt cops who, along with private investigators and the press, would be the cradle where the dark arts were nurtured. So, this is where the story really starts a year before the murder. Sid Fillory had introduced Jonathan Rees to the owners of a car auction warehouse on the bank of the Thames, Belmont Auctions. It had just been robbed of £20,000 in cash in an armed hold-up, so they wanted more security for the cash in transit. Three off-duty police officers would make their presence felt, while the money was handed to a security team comprised of 
Jonathan Rees, and his two brothers-in-law, Glenn and Gary Vian. They would then transport the takings to the night safe of a local bank. They did this twice a week for a couple of weeks without incident when, on the evening of the 6th of March 1986, something untoward happened. I remember ringing, you know, I just called, rang my brother up one day. It was just, how are you? You know, what's going on? And I remember him saying to me, he seemed, he, he was quite unhappy because he told me that Jonathan Reese that the evening before he had been robbed of 18,000 pounds. He told me that Reese had been employed to transport cash for a firm of car auctioneers and that en route from the car auctions to the bank, he'd found the night safe super glued and he had a couple of bodyguards with him and he dropped the bodyguards off at their home, driven to his own home, and when he got there, there were apparently two men that sprayed ammonia in his face and grabbed the cash and made off with it. This was later described as the luckiest mugging in the world. Belmont Auctions was much closer to the faulty night safe than Reese's home, so why didn't he take the money back to them? Other things just don't add up, and Bellman Auctions thought the whole thing was a farce and a scam. Within weeks, they'd launched a legal claim to get their money back. Daniel thought Reese should pay since it was his job. Meanwhile, Reese said they should both be jointly liable to the company. Daniel alerts you to the idea that there is extensive police corruption in that area. Is that right? Yeah. Well, no, I think it was probably about a month. And again, I was... I was visiting him and I was sitting in his office and Jonathan Reese came into the office and he said, oh, oh, Daniel, can we, can I have a word with you? And Daniel went out of his office and into Reese's office. And after about 10 minutes, a short time, Daniel came back into the, into his office and he, he walked over to the window and he was, I could see he was upset about something or anxious or upset about something. And I said to him, uh, what's the matter, Dan? And he mentioned a name. And I can't remember that name to this day. He, he just mentioned a name to me. And I said, well, uh, well, who's that? And he said, oh, he's a bent copper, Alistair. And I, I thought, hmm, that's uh, a bit worrying. Uh, and he just said, Alistair, they're all over the place down here. They bickered constantly. As we'll see when we get to the inquest in 1988, other witnesses claim the acrimony was so bad that Reese was planning to have Daniel killed. This is what you stated in the statement. I formed the opinion that John Reese was determined to either kill Daniel Morgan or have him killed. When he spoke to me about it, John Reese was quite calm and unemotional about planning Daniel's death. Are you sure of that? Yes, I'm sure. But was this alleged hit job about the Belmont auction heist? Or was there some deeper issue at stake? On the 5th of March, there had been a court case. The Belmont issue had come to court. And that evening, this was on the 5th of March, five days before the murder, Daniel came home and spoke to his neighbour. Now, uh, his neighbour was called Doris, and she was an elderly lady, and he said to her, Oh, Doris, you never guess what I found out today. And she said, Oh, what's that, Daniel? And um, he said, All police are bastards. So he was obviously very... He'd found out something that day, and it had upset him. And, uh, I mean, I know that he knew that there were corrupt police officers, 
But this somehow had uh, really, really angered him, you know. So now we're coming to the last few days of Daniel's life. His sister Jane hadn't seen him for a year since she'd moved to Germany. But Alistair still recalls warmly one of his last images of Daniel the month before. He'd bought an old Austin Healey 3000 sports car and he'd spent years and years rebuilding this car. I remember him on one occasion saying to me, telling me that, he'd, that it was now roadworthy and he could drive it round the block. And he took this car out of the garage and uh, onto the road and, and put this ridiculous sort of leather pilot, you know, one of these First World War pilots hats on. Uh, and um, I was laughing at him because he had a big moustache and he looked quite ridiculous with this thing on. And he revved up the car outside the house in the street and it sounded like an aeroplane with that with this 3,000cc engine. Daniel wanted to give this restored Austin Healey 3000 to his daughter Sarah on her 21st birthday. But this car would go in a very different direction. He was a member of the Austin Healey Club and on the Sunday before he died, he went to a meeting of the, of the Austin Healey Club. I think it was in Hendon in North London. And I learned later that he'd spoken to a couple of members of the club and one of them he had he told this person that he believed that Sid Fillory and Jonathan Reese had actually been involved in the Belmont auctions robbery that it was a setup right and he'd spoken to another member and told this other person that he was dealing with some police corruption and that he was I think thinking of going to an out he did he, he didn't trust the Metropolitan Police to deal with it and he was either going to go to an outside force or go to the press about it. So, here's our third major theme, apart from private investigators and the police, the media. As we know, Daniel was obsessed that week with police corruption. And there are two witnesses who say that Daniel was planning to blow the whistle to the press. We know he had extensive press contacts. He knew Alistair Campbell at the Mirror, had worked on BBC Panorama and had passed on stories to Private Eye. One witness says that Daniel was about to sell a major story about extensive police corruption to a newspaper. Another, his former employer, Brian Madigan, says he was going to sell the story to a specific journalist at the News of the World. Monday 9th of March, 1987, Daniel went to a meeting at a pub he never usually frequented, the Golden Lion in Sydenham. He parked his smart BMW 5 Series Coupe on the busy road outside. Inside the bar, he met Reese and Fillory, where they had a noisy altercation. The next evening, around 7.30, he returned to the Golden Lion. For some reason, he parked his car in the secluded and dark car park round the back. He'd never drive that car again. Early the next morning in Hampshire, Alastair Morgan was awoken by a call. I was staying at my grandmother's and one morning the phone rang at about half past five, very early in the morning. And I can remember sort of, you know, coming to, hearing the phone ringing in the hallway of my grandmother's flat and thinking, looking at my watch and thinking, it's half past five, who on earth is ringing an 86-year-old woman up at, at half past five in the morning? 
I had just walked our dogs. We had a blanket of snow, very cold winter, which was... I'd walked the dogs and I came home and then and then my husband came in, in his fatigues, combats. I got out of bed, went to the phone and it was my mother. And I was, you know, sort of groggy from sleep and, and she said to me, Why are you home? And he said, Jane... I want you to brace yourself, she said, because I've got some bad news for you. One of your brothers is dead. Daniel's dead. Listen in next week when Alistair becomes the only true detective on his brother's murder. Episode 1 was supported by Hugh Grant. Produced by Peter Dukes and Devia Mir. Soundtrack by Shemali Mir. A Flameflower Duende production. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen on the Acast app and get extra images and background notes alongside the audio or visit untoldmurder.com. End song, Hold On by the Lemmingtons. Out of the shop, found the fire escape onto the street. There's a steel rail. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.